0: There are some people who talk and some people who don't, which means that there are some people who leave this place and some who do not leave. You
1: are obviously staying. Has it ever occurred to you that you're just as much a prisoner as I am? No, oh, my dear chap, of course. I knew too much. We're both lifers. I will not be pushed, filed,
0: stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack ass inflections from Patrick McGoone, Chris and Glenn made a pop- It's a degree. Absolute, absolute Glenn
2: Chris uh, This will mean nothing to the listener But it is disturbing to me You look a little, a little casual there, buddy That looks like a regular crew neck That you're wearing, from what I can see Don't think there's any starch in that shirt No buttons No collar No jacket I can't wait to see where this goes. Well, it's just that I thought we agreed that this episode of A Degree Absolute would be presented in the prestige format. Oh, okay. Glenn. Look at you. Cardstock paper.
1: Cardstock paper.
2: Square binding. Square bound, yes. Process color. I don't know what that means, but I remember it being a thing that the I think it, means it would say. The,
1: it bleeds to the edge of the page is what that means, oh, which was also right. a thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so you don't have those white or. Well, if it's on Baxter paper, it's white. If it's on oh, newsprint. Toy. And in 1988, I think like the standard entry level Marvel comics that were cover price 75 cents at that era were just on regular old newsprint. Glenn, mm-hmm. am, I, am I right about this? I think, think so, yeah. Approved by the Comics Code Authority.
0: Mm hmm.
1: But then Go they ahead. switched to the Baxter paper, which um, holds holds color and doesn't discolor as it ages as much as good old newsprint would.
2: Well, it's not just your comfortable wardrobe mm. that uh, I take issue with, Glenn. It's um, I don't know how to how to say it. it your 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 visage. There's um, uh, something something about it. It's, uh, oh. it's shattered, just, Sh- shattered, it's, Chris. Uh, right. Shattered. It's shattered, shattered. Also, oh. I got
1: two vast and trunkless legs of stone over here. <laughs> It's probably my edema. It's probably swelling of the legs.
2: Don't you know the crime rate's going up, 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 up Mm -hmm. to live in this town? You must be tough, 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 Mm tough. Rats on the west side, bedbugs uptown. What a mess. This town's in tatters. I've been shattered. Why don't you take the next verse, Glenn?
1: Uh, I met a traveler from an antique (laughs) land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert Mm -hmm. near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown." And a wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions red Which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things The hand that mucked them, the heart that fed And on the pedestal these words appear My name is Ozymandias, king of kings Look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair Nothing beside remains round that decay of the colossal wreck Boundless and bare that some That lone and level sands <laughs> stretch far away. That's from Percy Bish Shelley. I, I, it's
2: you don't have to tell me who it's from, Bish. Next
1: to impossible to say Bish.
2: I'm an educated man, Bish.
1: Okay, right. Well, step
2: up, Bish. By which I mean I've read Watchmen, which also quotes uh, Ozymandias. Speaking of late 80s uh, prestige format DC Comics, Watchmen was not published in the actual prestige format. It just, it it like was the prestige format since Mm -hmm. it showed up in, uh, you know, Walden books and all of these normie outlets before the decade was out. Also, you got stamped in there. Or, oh, or did. You, you and Good. you and Percy Bysshe Shelley got stamped in there. So we'll so we'll we'll count that. Good. I'll actually give you a 5 out of 6 for that when we come back to it because you were mm-hmm. almost off book. Um yeah. you only stumbled once or twice.
1: Yeah. Cuz it's 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 uh white lettering on black background and
2: that's very tough to read. Uh, of course. Yeah. So no, but it it fits the remit because again, you know, if I had not grown up within biking distance of a comic book store and started wandering in there in, I'm going to say 1986, because I actually figured this out once. I had to go back and, and find out when G.I. Joe number 49 had been published because that was the first comic book I ever bought. Mm-hmm. And there was probably a year between when I started reading G.I. Joe and when I began to comb the other shelves Expanded my horizons and, and picked up uh, Detective Comics 587, which was, I think was the first DC book that oh. I had. It was a uh, Alan Wagner, John Grant, uh, Norm Brave Fogel drawn Batman story. And, you know, that led me into DC land. And pretty quickly, I was noticing their more adult looking books, their more intriguing books, they're much more expensive books. Mm-hmm. Um, and their books that the staff of Franklin Farm used books and comics would not always sell to a young man such as myself, because some of them were designated in the, the shop's uh, self-imposed rating system, PG-18, Glenn, wow. requiring parental that is, approval. To, they yeah,
1: pulled that out of their ass. That is made up.
2: They did, and that actually for the same reason that Alan Moore, by the end of the 80s, like, said he would never work for DC again because mm-hmm. they had started labeling their books. the You know, suggested for mature readers, that label appeared on Swamp Thing during his run, and mm-hmm. that, that all became Vertigo later, which I think now has just rebranded as something else, as like Black Label or something, which just sounds like booze.
1: Yep, sure. It's a limited edition. It's a single single barrel. Anyway. Originally, these uh, four issues of The Prisoner's Shattered Visage were from DC. They came out via DC, which means that uh, number six is um, DC Comics canon. He is. He probably got destroyed <laughs> on the Crisis on Infinite Earths, but he's there.
2: See now, you have the the Bible, the the book that like has its own lectern. I, I've seen this this book in your home, the Who's mm-hmm. Who in the DC Universe. So yep. I expect you to have checked this, Glenn, to see if there is a black and white photograph of John Drake with with X's over <laughs> it somewhere in that volume. I could know? just
1: rip a page out of this book here and just slam it in there, and then boom, done. Canon. Yeah. Cannon and Saber. It was
2: Direct Currents, the DC Comics like their own, you know, solicitation newsletter, this 3B that they would distribute to comic shops around about the time I started going to the comic book store regularly that would promote their new books. And there was one I actually went and found it the other night and texted it to you, mm-hmm. uh, pretty early in the run of Direct Currents that that focused on this series that we're talking about tonight, Shattered Visage, the authorized sequel to The Prisoner, published in four installments, circa late 88, early 89, Uh so closer to 21 years than to 20 years after the initial British airing Uh of the series. What struck me when I looked at, at this little flyer again is how little information there is about what the hell this thing is just uh, like four paragraphs and two panels of the comic that give you nothing. Like it is right. a picture of a, of a woman looking through a wheel of spokes that I would later put together was a penny farthing bicycle, although it's a, it's a close up, So you can't tell what sort of wheel it is. And then it's a reverse shot of her walking into a building that again, like once you've seen the prisoner, you will recognize the architecture of the Port Marion village buildings, but, if you had not seen the show, and I hadn't, <laughs> it's like this is what you chose as your your marketing image. Your okay. So this is interesting.
1: Uh, I it hadn't occurred to me that you hadn't seen, the but you picked up all four of these volumes as a kid. Yeah, I did.
2: did because I was I was obeying direct current's orders when it came to what to spend my paper route money on, and once it became more of a, a habit, I'm ashamed to say what to spend the money that I was pinching out of my parents' drawer on. Okay. All right. Well, you know,
1: no jury in the world. Actually, you know, some would. But um, (sighs) I was well-versed in The Prisoner. I had internalized the show. I had it on... I had taped it on VHS. And so when this came out, when I was a sophomore in college, I collected them all and poured over it trying to find meaning and recognizing every single reference. (laughs) And there were... (laughs) a lot of references. Yeah. Um, kind of hated it back then <laughs> because I figured a sequel to The Prisoner, especially one that was clearly authorized, they made a big thing uh-huh. of that. And all right. that meant was McGowan had to approve each and every page and he did so <laughs> without comment. <laughs> um, yeah. And that meant something to me, but then I didn't understand what it was pointing to. Now reading it, as uh, as a middle-aged man the swings it takes are kind of ballsy it answers some questions definitively it inter- introduces new lore that someone else could theoretically follow up on but it's not a hidebound conservative reiteration you know just regurgitation of what what exists it's a, an attempt to move the series forward and contemporize it uh to the 80s um in a way that i think is interesting
2: yeah do not you, not love on the art but no I, I yeah and and i mean dean motter the the writer and penciler for the, i think so it's credited as uh, uh, dean motter and mark Asquith, who uh, i did find an interview with with motter a pretty recent interview um, let's see uh, 2019 from a website called a place to hang your cape not oh. one that i knew cuz i was just googling dean motter conducted by Fred McNamara. So, I mean, this is a 30-plus years later Uh looking back on the process of uh, making this series. But, yeah, Modder said that basically that his involvement basically came about in a weird way the the same as mine did. Like, it was like DC had invented this new format, the prestige format, which is that they had created um, basically to lure Frank Miller over from Marvel, right? right? Frank Miller was on Daredevil at that time. And DC wanted him. This would pay off with the Dark Knight Returns, of course, which was published in, you know, four issues in eighty six. It might actually the first volume might have been eighty five, not not sure, but um, you know, this where again, square bound, forty eight pages, cardstock, better color, higher quality paper and printing than, you know, regular monthly periodical comics had at that Mm -hmm. time. Uh, They publish Ronin first, which was Miller's creator-owned original thing. And and, um, from what I understand, although I I picked that up at the same time, again, I was reading all these in trade paperbacks. I wasn't getting the original issues of uh, Dark Knight or Ronin because those preceded my involvement with comics slightly. Uh But I certainly got the trade paperbacks and, and loved them both. Ronin apparently was not that big of a hit from what I understand maybe like the prisoner tv series it was something that was promoted heavily and that generated a lot of interest but a lot of people who picked it up at the time did not like it um no i think but, i think
1: uh, i think it was largely a it was a new character it wasn't established it wasn't dc or uh, marvel it was it was an attempt to be indie before the indie thing really kicked off so yeah the, those those kind of titles always struggled
2: Okay. Well, because and it wouldn't take Miller very long to to just yeah. be you know I think by the end of the decade pretty much he was he was done with Marvel or DC he went yeah. to Dark Horse and created Sin City and and that was that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Richard Br- Bruning, who was the art director at DC, so very much responsible for how these books were presented, this more upscale, sophisticated, cinematic look that they had, certainly compared to regular old uh, all ages superhero comics at the time. According to motter uh, it was uh, Bruning who approached him and said, look, we're looking for other books to do in this format. We've invested in this. We've created oh. this. We need some, some material. <laughs> and he said it was actually Bruning who pitched him on a sequel to The Prisoner. He said uh, motter said he knew the show. He was a fan of the show, but it had never occurred to him that there would be any interest in a, a sequel in any medium. Um, but you know, particularly not in comic books where he was working, and he was doing a, an indie book at the time called Mr. X. Mm-hmm. I've never read that. Do you? Are you familiar no. with Mr. X? Okay, I'm not. Um, apparently, the attention that it got was mostly down to its its visual design, um, which is puzzling to me because, I, as you said earlier, like I don't think this comic Shattered Visage is a particularly good looking. I think it's
1: I think its layouts are interesting, um, consistently interesting, um, and I'm just not sold on the sketchiness
2: that. Yeah, uh, it looks the the pencils look a little
1: rough. Right and now. the uh, and the the combination I don't know if it's the pencils I think it's the inks, um, but uh, the you no,
2: know, that's what I'm saying is like I mean the kind of detail and refinement that you get over pencils when you have an inker. Yeah. Well, like an artist who's actually inking themselves or an inker who's very simpatico with the penciler. It just just doesn't have that kind of refined look, right? And there's also this
1: technique of taking photo references of the village and even of characters and then just drawing over them, which... I think was probably pretty innovative at the time, but now it just looks like it's a zine. You know, it just looks, Yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't look great.
2: One of the other prestige format DC books that I bought contemporaneously with this was Black Orchid, which is the Neil mm-hmm. Gaiman, Dave McKean. And I, I haven't read that in years. I'm sure mm-hmm. the story was probably pretty ordinary, unremarkable superhero stuff. But I didn't know that because Dave McKean's paintings were so wild. Yeah. Um, and of course, this was right around the time Gaiman was also creating Sandman for DC and Gaiman would... Paint, uh, collage, et cetera, All of the the covers for that series, and and also would would do Arkham Asylum with with Grant Morrison. You know, not too long after this, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't. I mean, these things were just mind blowing to me visually. I did not have any vocabulary to describe. What they looked like or, or how they made me, me feel. Um, Bill Sankiewicz uh, was yeah. another artist like this who had collaborated with Frank Miller on um, a Daredevil graphic novel called Love and War and then uh, Electra Assassin, which I think came out the same year as mm-hmm. Dark Knight Returns. This was for, for Marvel Epic, Mar, you know, Marvel's creator owned uh, line that also permitted a bit more adult stuff that they would not publish in their, you know, under their own banner. And I, I mean, Electro Assassin was the same thing. Where I was like, I barely understand this, but it looks so cool that is just blowing my mind, and it makes me feel like I'm experiencing something adult and sophisticated, and you know, not this stupid kid stuff that's happening in the seventy five cent newsprint comics. Right. I will. I will say
1: though that both Black Orchid, which was this really kind of. D-list character that had been kind of bouncing around DC for years, and Arkham Asylum both could have been very straightforward superhero fare, and, and neither one of them was because uh, <laughs> uh, Morrison was doing a lot of drugs and uh, and, and and game. Yes, and
2: uh, so, we we read Super Gods many many decades yeah. after this, and uh, you know, read about um, how he was denying himself sleep and. I don't know peyote or whatever uh-huh. hallucinogens. He was, uh, yeah, many.
1: <laughs> but they're both kind of fractured techniques. narratives uh, in ways that really make you look at the make you look at the character in a new way, which is kind of the idea.
2: Okay. Uh, Glenn, this is the equivalent of when you would occasionally, in this uh, format busting experimental era in comics, the late '80s, where you would get to the the title page of a comic with the the credits, you know, the title of that issue. The indicia, how do you say that word? Indica, sure. the yep. you know the little publishing information, and that would occasionally be on like page nineteen of a twenty-four page sure. comic book. That would be the equivalent in comics to what this is in in a podcast. I was about to say, half an hour in, wherever uh-huh. we are, we we explain why why we're reminiscing late eighties comics, clan. Why why are we doing that?
1: Uh, because. Well, Glenn, it's because in 1966, Patrick no, okay. and right. started the long-running Good.
2: TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a newest series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident, well, many residents are referred to only by their numbers, real and provocative, silly and pretentious ahead of his time, and innately and unambiguously lava lampedly of its time, that short-lived long-tail series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. And we welcome you now to the private, personal, by-hand, tangent-tolerant, but properly punctuated, punch-car-driven podcast. What's a podcast? <laughs> it's uh, a. <laughs> It's a. G- 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 We're shocking you. We're administering little little uh, bits of physical encouragement to keep you awake. I, I know
1: what a progcast is. I would I would love to, I would love to do a progcast. Uh, it's nothing but no. Genesis. You know, uh uh-huh, like no, Okay. Yeah, you're you're and,
2: on your own for that one, buddy. Yeah. Uh, we take this unclassifiable, unclassifiable, and unforgettable. <laughs> Televisión, Mm-hmm. and over to you, Glenn.
1: Oh boy! Well, this is going to be exciting and seat of the pants because this is going to be word association because I forgot to do this because I thought it was Chris's turn. We push uh-huh. it like it's a broom of Sylvester the janitor who is the uh, uh, motto, the mascot of Cracked magazine which is also a DC property so it is tangentially related.
2: Sylvester the janitor?
1: Yeah.
2: Um, does, does he appear in, in the prisoner colon shattered visage anywhere, Glenn? Nobody's, he's a in the DC universe, sort of. Oh, huh. okay. Hmm. Right. But you did also verify that number six is in the DC universe by, yep. by looking it up in your, your book.
1: Yep, sure. You did, did. say that.
2: Okay. I'm going to give you a one out of six, Glenn.
1: Okay, this, these are all going to be zero out of sixes because this is all uh, top of the dome and I have a... Have a Capricious you have at, last,
2: at last exhausted my, my goodwill with your arbitrary, your capricious, your, your sometimes cruel yeah, grading sure. acumen, Glenn. So keep,
1: keep we going. F- file it like uh, the cards that are in that one filing room that's uh, in the second issue that he walks through on his way to see the director of operations that time. The cards? Yeah, it's a filing cabinet room thing.
2: Two you get two, two out of six. That's fine
1: We index it like those cards in the filing cabinet room, one assumes, because they have to be indexed. One out of six All right. Now we stamp it like uh, the, the, uh, like they're stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed.
2: Huh? Oh, okay. You already said that's a bish move, but it's a bish bish move. All right, five five out of six.
0: Uh,
1: we brief it like the uh, amount of dialogue in this comic book compared to its page count. Mm
2: -hmm. All right, Mm -hmm. all right, I'll give you a six for that one. All right, that's that's fair.
1: We uh, debrief it uh, like um, when you take those four issues and you kind of put them all together. Um, it's not longer. It's no longer brief. It's it's pretty. It's pretty debrief. Uh, trade
2: collection. Still pretty brief. I mean, you can still read it in a sitting. Maybe a three for that one. Three out of six. <laughs> one.
1: We number it like these issues are not. Okay. <laughs> Because they're All A, right. B, C, and
2: D. Yeah, good. Okay.
1: Off the dome.
2: Uh huh. Good. All right. Well, I'll give you an E out of six. For, okay. For
1: that <laughs> That's perfect.
2: Very good, Glenn. All right. So it is, a, again, a shattered visage, the authorized, personally approved by Patrick McGowan, by which oh. I mean. You think they maybe they like faxed him some like some galley pages while he was on the set of Baby Secret of the Lost Legend yep. and like back in his trailer. He's like, and there's just every like, page
1: comes back to him with a ring of bourbon, like from <laughs> the bottom of the glass. Gone. Sure. <laughs> Whatever. No comment. Uh, so in my version, which I I ordered uh, of this trade okay. paperback, uh, the words "Shattered Visage" do not appear on the cover because this is the Titan Comics, the British version of okay. the book.
2: So this is passed Peered. into another publisher's hands. A titan who I think also published a much more recent Prisoner... Co- yes, this is... Um, I got, after I was disappointed by my revisit with Shattered Visage, I bought the trade edition of The Uncertainty Machine.
1: I haven't read it yet. By
2: Peter Milligan and Colin Lorimer. Mm-hmm. And this was... Um, Wow, the Indicia, Indicia. Oh. <laughs> There's also some pot associated word that yeah. is spelled in a very similar way. You know what mm-hmm. I'm talking about? I do. What I'm trying to say, Glenn, is this is incredibly small time. <laughs>
1: oh. oh, look at you.
2: 2018. Weird. I think this is 2018? Tw- tw- yeah. So this is like 30 years after.
1: I think Peter Milligan did Shade the Changing Man back in he the day, did. which is another, yes. is another trippy. Yeah. A, art, I, I, weird art kind of thing going
2: another on. Another comic that I dutifully bought because I thought it made me sophisticated and cool, even though it kind of made my head hurt.
0: Yeah. yeah. This is a dreamy
2: So
1: we open on a bunch of text pages uh, that are festooned with photos and illustrations. And the first thing out of the gate... That uh, matter and ask with do that I admire the hell of is remove some ambiguity about who ran the damn village. It's the Brits, Chris. The Brits did it. It's MI5. They're the ones who ran the village. Boom, done. We're out. Of, it's that's that's in paragraph one mm-hmm. of this thing. The text in question is a communiqué from excavations officer Thomas Drake nice touch uh-huh. there's going to be yeah. so many of these nice touches that they're going to pile up and start to feel a little annoying but right now in this uh, in the opening moments this is yeah. kind of a nice touch to retired MI5 divisions director mrs butterworth we're not going well, to keep I, I running i knew talent. you would like that yeah i do yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. That, I
2: guess. And then i believe uh, later on mrs butterworth her first name is georgina
1: yep yep uh, yep i'm loving it now at one point in this text chris he writes that he would be loath to trouble you l-o-a-t-h-e what's wrong with that chris
2: um well he's he would be loath to, totally, to i mean i mean totally yeah i am mean, I'm, I'm i'm loath to be the the fucking i guess it's not grammar but please usage is it's usage and it's just like this is like, well i'm not here to be the fucking usage please but <laughs> uh but i'm gonna make a citizen's arrest yeah
1: yeah. I'm going to issue
2: a citizen citation. It's
1: a tiny little thing, but it bugs the hell out of me. Leo mm-hmm. McKern's number two has been in jail for 20 years for selling yes. state secrets.
2: Do we think Leo McKern approved the use of his likeness in uh, this comic well, book? Do I mean, we know we anything get, about
1: this? We get a little, uh, mine has a forward from his daughter, Abby. Does yours have a forward from oh, his daughter, Abby?
2: It doesn't. Okay. Does, did Leo McKern's daughter write all those advice columns? <laughs> no, the... no, 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 no. No? Okay. Uh,
1: from Abigail McKern, in August 2018. Um, she says, Watching old interviews of Leo now, I feel sad and protective of him. He obviously found McGowan extremely difficult to work with, and I know he suffered from depression and a breakdown during film, filming. Sometimes I was protected, something I was protected from and unaware of at the time. That said, together they produced some absolutely electrifying scenes. Something totally new, original, challenging, and unlike anything seen before on British television. And for that, I am grateful, even though, clearly, the man was a monster. Um, (laughs) So, yes.
2: are, are you appending Dear Abby's comments there, or did she actually say Patrick McKeown was a monster?
1: She didn't actually say i I'm, I'm, Okay. I'm, I'm reading between the lines.
2: Got it. You're uh, vocalizing the subtext.
1: Yes. So the uh, Leo McKeown's number two has written a tell-all book that has hit the stands and become a bestseller. It's called The Village Idiot. But apparently Thomas, in his role as a government dweeb, has obfuscated yeah. the most sensitive material in it. And this most sensitive material, Chris, includes things like Project... Operation Pennyfarthing, prisoners of power, protect other people, and price of peace. This is when it starts to get a little annoying. I see what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I like it. It's clever. but And it does explain a little bit of you know the pop, 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 pop. He has also excised any reference to the archangels. Now... Again, we're, what, four paragraphs in, and already he's introducing new lore. Archangels, not mentioned in the show, not a thing. (laughs) And he's like, nope, nope, nope. nope, let's do it. I'm going to introduce this idea of archangels, which will come back. But I was completely lost when I first read this. Thomas, in this uh, communique.
2: Imagine me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I am about two years away from seeing... Any episode of The Prisoner. There is so much in this point.
1: thing that is abstruse and people talking past each other and answering questions with questions that it just must have been gibberish to you. It was kind of gibberish to me uh, until my most recent reread, but uh, yeah. Uh,
2: I mean, this is far from the only comic book in this era that I I think, you know, in hindsight, they were just cool objects to buy. I mean, they they looked cool. No, not so much this This particular book, I mean, the covers are pretty good, but Uh um, I I mentioned earlier those Dave McKean covers on Sandman. I've I've actually been revisiting Sandman this year for the first time in a long time and enjoying that picking up on on a lot of things that went over my head way Uh back when. And It's not the first time I've reread that, but it's the first time in a long while. There were a lot of comics in this era that I convinced myself that I understood that I just didn't. Yeah,
1: I didn't really love that series in the beginning because it was kind of leaning so much into the horror elements and the violence and the serial killing bullshit that I just was like, no. Yeah. Once it starts to engage with mythology in a real way, that's when it starts to become a saga that I just love. Anyway, Thomas is worried about the status of prisoner number six. Uh, And then he goes on in this communique to recount... The entire series plot in a handful of paragraphs. I I admire the hell out of this. A lot of chutzpah. The village's repeated attempts to break number six. How the, what he calls the chairman of the village, which we call number twos, Hmm. uh, became obsessed with breaking him and finding out why he resigned. The last chairman of which, the Liam McCurn number two, engineered a theatrical tour de force involving actors as well as hallucinogenic drugs. Now, Chris, you and I... Over the course of the series, have clucked our tongues and stroked our beards at those uh members. You, you've those,
2: stroked your
1: beard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At our beloved listeners and our beloved Alex Coxes, who keep trying to make this series make logical sense, logistical sense. Try to make it work, um, especially the episode, the last episode of Fallout. I like this. You I do. Can't, I can tell you why, because.
2: Exactly, you, you like this George Marksteinification of uh, of Fallout, huh? It's like they got Markstein back and he's like, okay, all right, no, 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 here's, here's what really happened.
1: There's precedent is what I like about it. Now, he is, you know, the, both of them kind of go back and kind of pull from the series in ways that kind of sometimes feel like desperate grabbing. And they don't connect to anything. They're just like fun little, you know, shout outs. Here, because Living in Harmony almost leads directly into Once Upon a Time and Fallout. Yeah. And Living in Harmony was all about hallucinogens and actors. And so wouldn't it make sense that if it didn't work with this one number two, this other number two would just heighten it? And that's what explains all the bullshit in Fallout? I like it. I mean, I know I shouldn't. And again, allegory, allegory, allegory. But just on a a pure level, he's trying, they're trying to reset the scene here and say, oh, yeah, Fallout happened, but it happened Mm. in this kind of weird kind of hallucinogenic way, which completely makes sense. And then we learn. Okay. Just on the heels of that, that U.N. troops liberated the village in 1968. Now, all those MPs in the cave that they kind of mowed down look a hell of a lot like U.N. police. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I like it.
2: Okay. It had me thinking of, a, an, on our Scanners episode, uh, Petri kept, kept bringing up uh, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. Clearly, she is is not over the wound of of that particular uh-huh. conclusion and this kind of felt like that to me a little. now i mean i'm i like the prior star wars chapter the the last jedi very much 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 more ardent uh defender of that than i am of fallout i think yeah. so so when the this last star wars movie veered back into a much more conservative reassuring direction and and tried to undo all of the the challenging genuinely original moves that the prior, you know, Ryan Johnson written and directed movie had made. This just had me thinking about that. This this kind of felt like, you know, with vastly lower stakes 20 years later, we're not talking about a a hugely commercial property like Star Wars in this case. It it is one of the many things about this that is so strange. You know, you mentioned how this well, how this works for you and and how convincing a retcon of of fallout it is coming from a guy who to hear him tell it was not thinking about the prisoner for years after it aired right you know he just got this pitch from richard bruning like hey (laughs) you got anything for us how about the prisoner and he was like let us see what i can do and comes back with this i mean maybe he just really really got it and relished this opportunity to try to um I don't know. Rescue the the conclusion in a way, or maybe this came from Mark Asquith. He does also say in this this interview with um, a place to hang your cape that I that I mentioned earlier that Mark Asquith, his collaborator on the script for this, was initially brought on as a as a researcher and advisor because he was the guy who was really enmeshed in prisoner lore, and then yeah. eventually his his contributions. Amounted to to such that he had to be credited as a, a co-writer. So maybe I don't know. Maybe maybe Asquith is was the one supplying the those firm connections to. You'd think so, but it strikes out. me that
1: that Asquith was kind of involved in the six of one, you know, group, and they tend to like pour over the text as if it's like Talmud, right? And to yeah. kind of to kind of um, twist it and innovate it in this way strikes me as something that you know, a writer coming along would do and not somebody. But I don't know, because Asquith has done his own writing in other places. So anyway, this guy, um, Agent Drake, is writing to Mrs. Butterworth because he thinks Six (laughs) is still in the village even though it's been evacuated it's been evacuated but the food and medical provisions are still going to it because the colonel ordered it so and this is when we are introduced in this book to the concept of the colonel as like the head of MI5 yeah but it could be the colonel we meet later or it could be a different colonel because again the role of the colonel like the role of colonel sanders just keeps mm. changing 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 so who
0: knows so
2: not not necessarily colonel j
1: not necessarily colonel oh Jay. really it's,
2: yeah really <laughs> yep. yet yet
1: although there is a mention of colonel nor the
2: colonel from Not Chimes of Big Ben. What's the, um, come on, the one where he actually escapes. Many many, happy returns. Many happy returns, yes. That's the the, the one with Mrs. Butterworth. Yes, the one with Mrs. Butterworth.
1: Um, So Drake is also convinced that once two gets released from jail, he's going to go to the village and try to put an end to number six. That seems like a leap to me. And then finally, before we conclude Uh, this uh, missive, we learn that Mrs. Butterworth is convalescing. Hope, Hope you get back on her feet. So that's the end of this intro, which I think, you know... It accomplishes a lot in a very little <laughs> amount of time, and it is the most yeah. like, information-dense thing we're going to get in this entire very abstruse uh,
2: book. This preceded it by, by almost a decade, but I'm, I'm still going to say, in the tradition of the first minute of the Phantom,
0: yeah. <laughs> yep. for, for those
2: who came in late, yep. uh, the exposition density is impressive.
1: Yep. So we get to book A, which is called Arrival, A Rival... It's like it's a grad student thesis, like a rival, a rival. No. In London, Alice Drake uh, has some severely feathered hair, and she's out shopping for books. She, we will eventually learn that she is a former secret agent. Uh, she's currently a travel book writer who is taking a sailing trip around the world. We think she's being shadowed by a dude with a mustache on a motorcycle, but she's also being shadowed by her ex, Thomas, the same Thomas Drake of Mm -hmm. the intro. Yep. Uh, We come to learn it's not her being shadowed. It is Thomas. She lives in Six's old apartment. She's got a daughter named Megan, but they are separated from Thomas Drake. Right. Uh, He stops by and warns her that their old superiors fear she may have turned uh, and this is when we learn that she left the spy game because of what happened to Joanne and Max. This won't come right. back up. but uh, mm-hmm. And moreover than that, and more important, I think, that she, be- she can't believe he'd stay in the game after what happened to Joanne and Max. So right away we're setting up that she has a, a stronger moral compass than Thomas does. Um, she tells him, because she's a better spy than he is, that sh- he has been followed all day by one of their own. Uh, and we will keep seeing this mustache guy with a hat throughout the book. <sighs> yep. Thomas drives K A R one hundred and twenty C mm. into the garage at uh, M- what I guess is Mi five. Mm-hmm. He calls immediately the director of operations, D Ops, um, and demands to know why he's being followed. D-OPS says, "Look, I didn't order it. Uh, I I loaned that guy to the gods last week. Again, a new thing. <laughs> new thing being introduced here." <laughs> Gods, archangels, this is all, I right. think, I think McGowan would have been down with it because he was such a, such a Jesus, Catholic guy. Maybe he wouldn't. Hard yeah. to say. But it seems like imagery that feels outside of something McGowan would have, would have come
2: better. Yeah. with. So know. obviously our, our new protagonist and well, I guess we should talk about whether she's even really the protagonist since she doesn't really do anything, but other um, than get on a boat. <laughs> and then and then crash uh Alice the significance of her name is obvious but um the guy who's tailing her Martin Lake right uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. is there anything to be I, I don't have any associations any readings of, Well there's of a Martin lot lake. of Alice
1: in Wonderland references throughout this yeah. thing um there aren't any kind of Arthur Arthurian lady of the lake stuff um I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, no,
2: I didn't. I didn't get anything either.
1: We he was loaned to the gods and uh Thomas is like those old fossils. Um they don't really mix with us normals. Uh and the Dops says that maybe Thomas has been looking into things they don't want him looking into. Thomas then goes to see the colonel walking through the file room of that we know very well. Right. Uh Thomas complains that his department is getting strangled. This is like th- this is where I I mean, I know it's like very Le Carre and Tinker Tailor you Spy, know, all this kind of like you're you're strangling my department, uh, my budget is being cut, like the now kind of,
2: office politics yeah. being, you know, where where the international intrigue coming down to uh, you took my yogurt out of the fridge in the break room, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah, you know, which I I do, I do, I mean, I like that in like Le Carre a lot. Yeah. Um, it didn't really excite me in this.
0: Story.
1: I mean, when you get so, so little dialogue, you want any dialogue that's in there to really punch and carry something and characterize and, and drive the plot. And when it's just this, I mean, it sets up a motivation, I suppose. But Thomas says that number two is going to be trouble. He'll want to go back to the village to avenge himself on those responsible for his incarceration. Why that would in, implicate number six, I'm not exactly sure. The colonel says that's nonsense because number two was very handsomely compensated. So we are getting again. Shut down that whole global conspiracy thing. This is just the Brits. The, the, the village is the Brits. That's all it is. And that's all it's ever been.
2: Yeah. That theory is directly contradicted by the much later prisoner comic book, uh, The Uncertainty Machine. Okay. <laughs> that I, that I read after know. this one. So
1: yeah. um, the colonel says, no, that's nonsense. He was handsome, and becomes it. Thomas attempts to resign. This is a nice mirroring thing.
2: We're talking about the guy who wrote The Village Idiot, which was a bestseller in its censored form, right? Yes, yes. Okay. So he was paid off by the government in addition to presumably earning a nice payday for writing a bestseller.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. Okay. Uh, the colonel rebuffs Thomas' attempt to resign and tells him to figure it out, thereby granting implausible deniability to go off and do something on his own. Alex uh, Alice drops Megan off at boarding school. Thomas meets with his personal, mm-hmm. my own private, Felix Leiter. Uh, his US opposite number, uh, a guy named Lee, they are trailed by motorcycle guy. Uh, Alice sits for a TV interview that establishes that her boat is called the Vorpal Blade, yet another Alice in Wonderland reference, and that she will be navigating by computer. This will turn out to be important. Thomas shows up and talks to her while we see Lee entering and coming out of her sailboat because he's futzing with something. Um, she then sets sail. She hangs out in a bikini with some dolphins. And I,
2: and I don't remember what his, I mean, I'm sure he had some, you know, overalls or some disguise on or something, but. It was a jumpsuit. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, Alice is, uh, yes, she, she quit, but she's still, she is an espionage operative, right? I got to think she's going to be like, who the fuck are you? What are you doing on my boat? Get off my boat. What did you do to my boat?
1: Um, no, because, uh, they sent the crew in to get a look at, to, to film some of her boats. So he's part of that crew.
2: Mm. Okay, so he he disguised himself as part of the character. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I still have some doubts about Alice's tradecraft, Glenn. I by, think she's by, better by than container. Thomas's. I mean, that's okay. clearly it's, she's yeah, better than Thomas. Uh,
1: and she also looks good when she's hanging out in a bikini with some dolphins and uh, on her boat. And she runs into a storm. She washes ashore on an island, right? We don't really know. We, th- we suspect it's an island, probably. And uh, uh-huh. she finds a penny-farthing bicycle buried in the sand.
2: Yes, this is the scene that was teased on the cover of Direct Currents in the <laughs> summer of 1988 and made 11-year-old me go, "Welp, <laughs> got to come up with $3.50 somehow because exactly. I... Don't want to miss the part where this lady looks at a bike,
1: <laughs> right? And it's a penny-farthing bicycle. So maybe off-screen, there's just a, a, a strong man with a big mustache and like a, a leotard and a changing, bathing changing station yeah. and giant dumbbells that are perfectly circular. Uh She stumbles in, then she gets caught in a snare. She frees herself from it and she lands, Chris, with a perfect three-point superhero landing. Yes, I thought they were recent development. Apparently, no. Nope. It's there. It is. She, she lands like black widow uh, she is clearly in the village which has seen better days it's overgrown you get that photo reference drawing technique which yeah looks
2: uh, cheap I thought it was cool at the time but yeah I yeah. but I but also that's because I didn't understand how it was accomplished it didn't occur to me that um, you can do that with a copy machine
1: yeah yeah <laughs> you know. that's exactly what it feels like I
2: mean I, I, I mean I appreciate the the um, this this is pre-photoshop right so mm-hmm. you actually did have to probably use a copy machine to yep. to do it which, which uh, also uh, this is a tangent but again famously a tangent tolerant podcast since we were talking about the the respective roles of the penciler and inker earlier mm-hmm. um does uh, does anybody do that anymore comics are there is it people doing everything on computer nowadays or is are people still getting out their bristol board and their? India ink and there's a zapata tone or whatever the fuck. And, uh, pretty
1: sure outside of the world of alt comics, it's uh, all computer. Pretty
2: sure. Mm.
1: Okay. But prove me wrong, kids prove me wrong. Uh, she comes to the interactive map thing of the village. What used to say your village has been scrawled over, which what looks like lipstick to me as my village. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She walks some more. She gets spooked by a defunct. You see those those hand dryers
2: in bathrooms, Glenn, where uh, somebody would scratch out the last two letters on the instructions push button. So it would say push butt. Mm -hmm. I feel -hmm. like that's something number six would do. I feel like he has that. I mean, 20 years, right? 20 years. Waggish spirit, Glenn. a long time.
1: She makes her way up to the Green Dome. She goes into number two's office. And here we get a riff on the old intro that would be telling, blah, blah, blah. We see the bearded number six sitting in two's chair. He's got the jacket with the piping. He's got number two's umbrella. He says, you are number six. And it's not quite the end of the issue. The end of the issue is also always something that they use pretty well, which is just this one page that's a uh, kind of panorama of the village divided into panels. But Weather.
2: It's a weather It's, well, it's, but yeah. no,
1: what we do in that last page is we see some lights in the sky, landing in the village. Somebody is coming into the village in a helicopter, um, and that's that's kind of a cool thing. It's always used to kind of drive what's going to happen in the next
0: hmm.
1: uh, next uh, issue, which is called By Hook or By Crook. This is book B. She awakens in six's quarters. There's a pot of tea waiting for her. Welcome to your home from home. She looks around. She goes to drink the tea but thinks better of it because, again, I think she's a pretty good spy, She's a better
2: spy than number six was back in the old days because she dips a pinky in there and just puts a little bit on her tongue and then pours out the tea. Yep.
1: Very sharp. Six appears in the doorway. Rise and shine. Life is for living, he says. And then they proceed to speak past each other in a way that's meant to evoke the surreal quality of the show. But it's, you know, (laughs) a little, little goes a long way. He takes some particular interest in her tea. He notes that it's Darjeeling. Uh, Then they go on a tour. Back in London, the director of ops comes to see Thomas. It seems that the guy who was following Thomas got into an accident that killed him off panel. Um, Mm. This will become important, but it seems like it's a thing we probably should have seen. Uh, Back in the village, Alice is confessing to feeling lost, depressed, yearning for freedom. They discuss the nature of freedom, because of course they do. And while this is happening, as their tour continues, and this is what I mean about the layouts. I like the layouts here. We see someone packing away photos, walking out of the embryo room, accompanied by an elderly butler, who we never really see his face, we just see his outer shape, and coming to sit into number two's office. Uh, Six and Alice go to the bell tower. They do this ESP number guessing thing that he chalks up to her subliminal conditioning done by society. She shows three because everybody chooses three. Um, I like that shout out. I particularly like how it was kind of how it pays off a little bit later. They drive to the hospital, they drive to the stone boat, the palace of fun. Do you feel the like that board. was a,
2: a shout out to a Schizoid Man?
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah.
2: Yes. Uh, and I Allison. think it's ex-
1: explicitly Across. the girl Allison. Right. The girl Allison. Now.
0: Three wavy lines. It's a lot. 17 out of 25 is quite remarkable couldn't it just mean we're simpatico it might but there's more to it than that out of the last four runs you've got 73 out of 100
1: you're gifted he's carrying this chess pole thing that he turns into a uh, scarecrow for his rose garden because again we know about roses, right? This is this, this, like this, you, you, you dropped your cicadas or whatever the fuck.
2: He's <laughs> a, a keen rosarian.
1: He has this, he's carrying this cast iron skillet around tied to his waist. He pounds the scarecrow in the ground with it. They talk in abstractions about the garden and how the garden is ostensibly the state. And she's a new plant that must be washed carefully, which is kind of gross. They go to a mill, <laughs> which I don't remember from the show. There was no mill in the show, right? No. Okay. He catches uh, some fish. She thanks him for the fish and for the tea that morning. He says, the tea wasn't my doing. Uh, And then he lends her a jacket. And this is where the payoff is because she finds slips of paper that shows he would have pulled out whatever slip she said, whatever number Mm. she said. Right. So he was cheating on the ESP thing. I like that because ESP is Yes
2: this is exactly the same trick that Roger Moore Bond uses to trick uh, Jane, um, Jane Seymour, young oh. Jane Seymour as, uh, no, she's not Domino, Domino's Thunderball. What's her, what is her character's name? I don't know. She's the clairvoyant uh, woman in the employ of Mr. Big, played by Yafet Koto, and once once 007 takes care of her virginity, <laughs> she yep. loses her, she loses the second sight, Glenn. Uh, we later see that, uh, yeah. uh, a Double O Seven had a whole deck of tarot cards hidden in his jacket, so he he used exactly the same dirty trick to seduce Jane Seymour. Yeah, I like I like takes
1: care of her virginity. I like well, that <laughs> in fact, I don't. I don't like it. Let me just say,
0: I don't like that. Crazy. The cards say we will be lovers. Are you are mistaken. It's impossible. Forbidden for me. Now you must go. But you do believe. I mean, really believe in the cards. They have never lied to me. Then they won't now. Pick one.
2: Yes, when Yafit Kodo, as I recall, when he finds out that she has been... um, Surrendered her maidenhead. Thank you, Glenn. Yeah. Yes, uh, he, he says something like, "I would have given you love <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> when, when the time was right." <laughs> something that's a yep. that's a very poor Yafit Kodo. Anyway, carry R.I.P.
1: On. I. P. She goes for a stroll. She trips the security statue. A rover is released. It smothers her. Head back to London at the Hope and Anchor, Papa used to drink at. Ah. Uh, turns out that Thomas and Lee have altered her nav computer. To get her to sail by the village. what Their intention was to get her to sail by the village to scout it for them. Seems like a very poor plan because she yeah, just, she'd just like, be on a ship. What the fuck would she? Uh, but she ran into the storm. Thomas yeah. is worried that, oh, no, he will kill her. We don't get which he he's talking about. I think that's supposed to be ambiguous.
2: Well, because one of the two potential he's is the guy whose book Thomas just censored, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So... I think he must mean number six when he says that, because number two, he's like, uh, he's been bought off and I censored his book and blah, blah, blah. I mean, no, he but he says
1: not- the whole thing. He, the, what he told Mrs. Butterworth is that number two is going to go and wreak vengeance and, you know, he's going to go back to the village and he'll be a, a disaster. So I think he, I, my think is that he's thinking number two, but reasonable people can disagree.
2: Okay, I just I yeah, this is this is a fuzzy story.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very feathery at the edges and very feathery at the center. It's feathery. Alice awakens in Number Two's office. Uh, number Two is now sitting in the chair. He says power has returned to the village because there's electricity. I like that. Right.
2: And then Well, I want you to do this before we continue, since obviously we have Patty McGee as Number Six and McKern as Number Two here. Mm-hmm. So let's cast the rest of this thing, Glenn. Who's Alice? Who's Thomas? Who's Lee? Um, and we should, I think we should pick, I think we should pick actors who would have been the appropriate age in 1988
0: oh, when this boy. was.
1: Boy, it wouldn't be, it would have to be a British actress, right? You couldn't do like a Kathleen Turner. Yeah. Although she's, she's better at the right time. I just don't know any British actresses of that era um, too well who would fit into it. Maybe uh, Connie Booth <laughs> from Faulty Towers. Who's Connie Booth? Uh, she okay. played Polly on, on Faulty Towers. She's about the right, right sort of vibe there, I suppose. Uh Thomas would have been um the guy from Good Neighbours, Richard something. Oh, maybe Felicity Kendall. Let's give let's give it let's give yeah. let's uh let's let uh Alice be Felicity Kendall.
0: Okay.
2: Now that's the one who um the the guy from A B and C was uh, on a show with. Um mm-hmm. curly curly mustache guy, Pringles guy. Yep. Yeah, to the matter born, yes, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, I don't want a hint. I want you, that mm-hmm, guy, mm-hmm,
1: that guy. Okay, I think that's the main characters, right? I mean, you don't want D ops. No. Who cares about D ops?
2: No, but you got to You got to have Lee. You need some big bullheaded yank. Uh huh.
1: Uh huh. Lee, really. uh-huh. the guy Zabka, um, from Karate Kid. The yeah, big, that's good. The big okay. uh,
2: William big, Zabka. William Zabka. All right. That's, that's good. Him. All right. Well done, Glenn. Approved. Okay. Six out of six. So this, uh,
1: this scene, they just keep talking past each other. They're quoting famous lines from the introduction, from life, and they keep answering questions with questions. But the gist is that number two says he wants to help number six, who uh, stayed in the village, according to, according to number two, stayed in the village and dubbed himself number one. That is a contradiction. The man who refused a number has adopted a number. The village broke him. He's obviously gone crazy. So the final page, again, we get that divided up into panels. We see a light in the green dome and a pair of headlights approaching the green dome because we've seen before that number six is in okay. a mini-book. C, Confrontation. So uh, it's before dawn and uh, uh, Alice is at the stone boat. She's crying. Um, I don't. I didn't like that choice, actually. I didn't <laughs> think she would. didn't <laughs> think she would. I think she's more badass than that. But anyway, she she then watches <laughs> number six, uh, who is standing next to her, clamber down to the beach. He walks You just past...
2: make me emotional, even for people you don't know. Yes.
1: He walks past Rover, who seemed to just be chilling, not bothering anybody. And then he does kind of a sun salutation with the sunrise. Didn't quite get this. I mean, I like the colors by David Hornug and Richmond Lewis. This is the sunrise colors. It's very, you know, pretty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh yeah, I didn't quite uh, accept the fact that the sun is round and rover is round. I think that's what's going on there. Listeners, let us know if there's anything going on there. Well, Back in London,
2: and I mean by you know 20 years later, he he probably can't do his his morning uneven bars uh like that's true. kicking the the heavy bag, mm-hmm. you know, off of the uneven bars routine yep. anymore. So he's he's had to transition into yoga, low impact yoga. Makes okay. sense. I buy All right. it.
1: So back in London, Thomas is getting up at 6 o'clock. Again, just at some point, just relax, guy. Just relax. Um, Leading British scientists have been disappearing, we learned, because he's listening to the radio, Uh, many of whom worked for Marconi Electrics Company, which apparently, according to some of my poking around the Internet, was referenced in Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. I don't remember that, but apparently it was. Marconi Electrics Company is kind of like the front that... um, the MI5 the British Yeah things. okay I don't remember yeah I don't remember don't
2: that him. I mean I remember the camera shop I remember the yeah, the barber yeah. you know we, we baba's get around the, <laughs> Don't remember Marconi electronics
1: Uh he goes to meet Thomas goes to meet Lee in a park uh we learned that the car was a wedding gift for Mrs. Butterworth I I, I see that I like
0: oh, that
2: Oh I okay. like that I like that Hope she got that overheating in traffic solved Yeah
0: a
1: baby, bake you a birthday cake. Lee is putting a team together to head to the village to cover their tracks. I'm not sure exactly why they want to head to the village because their 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 operation has gone to FUBAR. What operation was it? Who can say? Again, lots of stuff doesn't connect here. Yeah. Alice, I mean,
2: and, I, and we, we don't ever get the sidequel cool where he, he goes to uh, Dutch, Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, and Dylan, Carl Weathers, okay. and, uh, and Billy, The you know, the team, assembling yeah. the team to, like yeah. you know, Jesse Ventura and Bill Duke and... Um, yeah, that would have been a cool team to, to bring into the village.
1: Okay. Uh, Alice <laughs> visits the control room where she gets spooked by a much better-looking ape mask than the one from Fallout. It is a very detailed—it uh, does not look fakey-fake. It, it looks, like, pretty scary. Six is lying upside down on the seesaw thingy. Uh-huh. He's singing Pop Goes the Weasel. Again, at some point, dude, if you're going to bring this in, it has to connect to something. It's got to be there for a reason as opposed to just, oh, he's crazy because he's singing Pop Goes the week. See, I
2: think this kind of train spotting to a certain fan, and, and I would have thought to you reading this for the first time, this was probably very rewarding in 1988 because... Old things were not so readily available then. I mean, I did look this up. The The Prisoner had been released on VHS, uh-huh. but it still wasn't super easy to get. It wasn't like now where you can just, you know, a couple clicks and the Blu-rays show up on your doorstep a day or two later. Uh-huh. Television series being released on home video at all was still pretty rare. That's true. Um in the same interview with the place to hang their capes, modder mentions that he had to get a bunch of photo reference material from Six of One, and that's uh-huh. how he was able to recreate the the set design for the for the interiors, for the control room, for the for the filing room, for the, you know, because it it just was not so easy to track down the original videos and you know films uh-huh. at that time. So yeah, I would imagine that as as wearying and and sort of Family Guy kind of remember this, remember this, remember this, as as I found this. For a lot of readers, it, it probably was very rewarding. I don't know.
1: Yeah, but it has a fan service equality to it in that oh, a lot of this absolutely. stuff doesn't necessarily connect to the larger story. It's just there to check a box and say, remember this? Um, yeah. As you say. So uh, Six and uh, Alice converse in German. He says, names am superfluous. I am number six. She says, okay, Mr. Under-over. And, and she that's probably a poor translation. I think what she's trying to say is Mr. Upside Down, because he is literally upside down for her. She says, what am I supposed to call you? And he says, nothing at all.
0: My name is... Names is for tombstones, baby. Y'all take this honky out and waste him,
1: now! She then inspects the camera thingy, seesaw, whatever, monitor. Um,
2: Sometime machine gun mount. Yep. Highly ineffective machine gun mount.
1: Highly ineffective. The stone boat. She sees the green dome. And then we see a glimpse, and this is not something she sees, but we see two on a rocking horse dressed as Napoleon. I really like this image. It's kind of unsettling. And it makes sense, right? Because there's all these Napoleon outfits lying around the village because we know that because they just had yeah,
2: all kinds I, of Napoleon I outfits. wondered. Yeah. I mean, that's a great drawing. That... that that is one of the few splash pages that yep. we get in this series when when he appears. I mean, the lighting effect of that that yep. drawing was confusing to me. It looks like he's sort of stage lit, or yep. li- like there are footlights, you know, mm-hmm. illuminating him from below. He he has this angry expression, like he's attacking or something. It's very striking, and it's a good likeness of Leo McKern. Mm-hmm. I just didn't understand it. You know, <laughs> I didn't know what the significance of, of of him being reintroduced in that way was.
1: I think. It's meant to underscore the fact that while the Leo McCurn number two, it keeps telling her, oh, he's gone crazy. He's nuts. He's cracked. He broke him. You know, we, the village broke him. We won. It's actually number two has gone nuts, and that's kind of clearly what's going on there. Um, back in London, Thomas stops by Deops. Thomas notes that his place has been searched. Uh, uh, Deops questions Alice's loyalty, asks why she resigned. Um, mm-hmm. They've got footage of Lee coming off of Alice's boat. Uh, Thomas denies any knowledge of him, and they suspect that Lee murdered the motorcyclist who was following him. It turns out that it's not just as simple as The Village Idea It is now a bestseller. It has been banned by the government, which gives the book more credibility. Um, And lots of stuff was redacted, including references to archangels, here he is again, and the fact that number two was just a pawn of them. He is not the true power. There is a power behind him. Back at the village, uh, Six and Alice walk through the hallway of past number twos. He tells her a fairy tale about, you know, the kings and the dragons, and it's a whole thing you get. Back in London, uh, they meet, Lee and and Thomas meet at a cricket pitch, um, (laughs) where Lee says, don't worry, don't panic, Uh, we're preparing for red alert, we're about to launch our offensive into the village. And back at the village, they try to seek shelter from the rain, and they're confronted by number two. Uh, turns out, number six, and I think this is a good touch, number six has always assumed that Alice is working with two based on her warder attitude, like she's yeah. a warden attitude, and her digital watch. He's never seen a digital watch. He assumes it's some kind of village technology. Yep. Uh, I like that. That's that's a nice piece.
2: Um, yes, Two and six uh, It's I mean, it's fight. the same joke as in Back to the Future when everyone in 1955 is asking Marty McFly if he jumped ship because he's wearing a vest.
1: Yep, 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 yep. Uh, two and six start uh, some, to engage in fisticuffs, um, and uh, Alice gets disgusted. Ugh, men, she basically says, and leaves. Yeah. Uh, two tells six that he's a coward for staying in the village and that all his information is 20 years old and out of date and worthless. Dude has a point. Uh... And then he pushes six off the water wheel at the mill. Why invent a mill? Why not just throw him off the belt? There's so many so many places you could have done in the village. There's no water mill in the village. But anyway, uh, back in London, Thomas attends the funeral for the guy who was tailing him. I, I read this passage from the Bible that the preacher was reading many times for any kind of significance. Didn't find it. Couldn't, couldn't figure out what, why I was reading what I was reading. An experience I had often in this book.
2: Yeah, Um, and spending, I'm going to say, a long time. I think it's only a two-page scene, but um, because we do hear so much of what the the vicar says. Yep. And, you know, there's just so little talking elsewhere in the book. It it feels very significant that we suddenly get all this speech. For a character who is seen in a few panels, but never speaks or anything. And again, I was just a little baffled by this choice that we're going
1: My theory is that Mater wants us to really look at the crowd, the crowd scene uh, in and around the church and notice that that guy with the mustache and the hat who was trailing them in the beginning, yeah. who we are told is dead is not in fact dead. And that the person who's in the coffin is not the guy who's, we were told is in the coffin and this guy is still following them, still telling them. That's my only... Okay. theory about why we're seeing yeah, this for Yeah, but, but
2: there's no payoff of that.
1: Yes, there is. Right? You'll see. Okay. Uh, okay. Back in the village, Six is in his residence. He is still alive. He is shaving off his beard. In the final page, we get the, the divided panel, and I didn't see any movement here. I think it's just we're supposed to see that it's a storm. But then I remembered that the storm that made her crash onto the village, uh, we learned from Thomas's listening to the radio, that the storm is circling back and heading back out to sea. So I'm going to say, take that as a confirmation that the village is an island and that it did kind of send her onto the island and then it circled back and is coming through the village again because it went back out to sea and on its way out to sea it passed over the island again.
2: Huh? (sighs) Huh? Huh? (laughs) You with me? Maybe I just haven't paid enough attention to weather patterns and... (laughs) <laughs> Fiction.
1: Yep, yep, yep. Book D, departure. Uh, they load the coffin under the hearse. We see the dude with the hat and the mustache. Deops is trying to figure out if Lake's death, the guy who we think is in the coffin, right. connects with anything right. else. He then barges into Thomas's offices and finds that he's got an appointment to meet with Mrs. Butterworth. So Deops goes to see Mrs. Butterworth. Uh, she's in bed uh, in a very well-appointed house. Um he tells her that he thinks that Thomas shredded all the files on the village, and she assures him, oh, he'd never do that. Um, he's, it's not, he's not that kind of guy. Um, and so he leaves thinking, okay, so I have to search again to try to find these files on the village. And then someone comes in, it's probably the dude with the mustache and the hat, and smothers poor Mrs. B. Yeah, I'm
2: sorry, Glenn. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a blow. I mean, I'm sure she was still quite vivacious even in, in her in the autumn of her years. Yep. Well, it's the
1: winter. I would say the winter, late, 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 <laughs> midwinter, in the bleak midwinter, uh-huh. frosty, frosty wind made moan. So in Thomas's office, he finds a file. Um, that's maybe my favorite thing. It's a floppy disk with a. It's one a, well, of those hard disks uh, with, yep. with a penny farthing bicycle on the label. And then uh, we cut to the so, briefing. So couldn't couldn't yeah, have been that
2: I much. Used classified intel because um was it like 600 megabytes or something
1: like
2: (laughs) those things top out at yep i believe 600 mb i don't even know why i remember that
1: so we do cut to this briefing and that's what i should have used in the brief debrief like that's Uh, the briefing i should have used that um uh uh, and you can tell that he's got all these photos and it just like i'm sure we we cut past like Three hours of him just waiting for the uh, printout like, z- 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 for all these photos to print out. Right. Uh, um, As,
2: uh, again, contemporaneous spy thing in the the movie No Way Out, where the entire ticking clock of that suspense film. Have you seen No Way Out, Glenn? A long time ago. Oh, it's got your girl Sean Young in it. Um, mm mm-hmm. Yeah, where it's just that it takes so fucking long to download a photo (laughs) that Kevin Costner is able to run around and do all these things before the photo comes out to a resolution where you can see that it's Kevin Costner in the photo. Awesome.
0: What do you want me to do? Will you slow up
2: the resolution on that picture? I need more time, Sam. I need more time to get this straightened out. They spend like half the movie waiting for... It's a pretty cool.
1: Diop sends a team into the village, demanding that they capture everyone, collect all the files. So, in Number Two's office, Thomas, Lee, and some soldiers see that uh, Diop's at all are coming and retreat into the village underground. Uh, and then, at one point, Lee says he's just looking out for Number One. Dun dun dun. <laughs> they go into the Welcome Cavern from Fallout. There is someone sitting yep. up there on that throne whom we're led to believe at the beginning is six, but it turns out it's two. He's kind of ranting and raving. He looks a little beat up. They walk past him, down the tubes, past the empty orbit tubes, to the quote-unquote heart of the village, which is several nuclear missiles. Um, again, this is new lore. This mm-hmm. is, this is mm-hmm. an introduction. This is um, We are kind of radically changing or making literal Because that's what uh, Lee says, that the village was always about power and control. And Lee knows this because apparently he read between the lines of the files. Uh, Lee is lying here. There's another reason why he knows exactly what's going on. But that's what he says to Thomas at this point. Suddenly, water starts rushing in because somebody, number two, initiated the launch sequence but is preventing the roof from retracting. That can't be good. Uh, Lee escapes with a mustachioed soldier who then leaves Thomas to die. Thomas heads up to the control room where 2 is counting down to 0. Is there anything significant in the in his countdown Chris did, that you noticed?
2: I feel like I've let you down here, buddy. Chris. He skips I... the number
1: 6. He skips the number 6 because of course he does. Oh. Yeah. Wow.
2: That's uh <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm ashamed. And no, I
1: mean like that that I
2: that i kind of liked
1: uh so the village blows up it blows up good back in london diops learns that lee wasn't working for the u.s he was actually one of theirs uh he was deep cover working for the gods perhaps he was an and i'm reading between the lines here an archangel Mm. possibly if he's working directly for the gods does that Mm. does that seem to make sense to you it kind of makes sense to me
2: I mean, I can imagine William Zabka telling himself that maybe, you yep. know, that's that's the bit of character research that he brought to it, because he needs to know that whether or not it's it's there on the page. Yep. In order to bring the inner truth of the character to the screen, Glenn, yep. he needs to know that is surely that he needs to know that uh, Johnny needs to sweep the leg.
1: So uh, Diops has been searching for most of this book for what he calls the common denominator. And we know that because early on he writes common denominator in his notes.
2: Uh, Yeah, I wonder if I would be more successful if I wrote (laughs) things like that, if I I wrote (laughs) out my thoughts in that way.
1: Well, he, he finds it. it. It works for him, at least, Chris, because he finds the common denominator, which is the dude with the mustache who has shown up at all these major events. They have photos of him at everywhere. So Diops thinks, I got it. I'm going to head to the colonel's office, and I will inform the colonel where he finds the mustachioed guy with the hat as the new colonel. And the colonel demands Deops' res- resignation, and the director of operations refuses to resign. He pounds mm. the desk. Yeah, Nice touch. Nice touch.
2: I did like that.
1: And later, he's any
2: uh, tea sets dislodged by yeah. the the force. Yeah, we of we his, see no tea sets. We see no tea sets. I don't think. Ha- that, well, okay.
1: I don't think this mustache guy is good, Is big on tea. So Diops is then home making tea. Uh, he's got a whiskey next to the tea because you know the, the one of the things that the the colonel informed him is like you've got a drinking problem. Um, then he gets cast and gets carted off in a coffin. So he's either alive or he's dead, but he's being carted off. Right. Uh, later, at some unspecified time, Six and Alice are on a park bench in London. He says he knows they're safe because his information isn't needed anymore. So number two is right. It's, all his information is outmoded, outdated. And that makes sense, right? That That is, that, that's a thing that would never have occurred to me, but is a really smart um, insight, observation, uh, a thing to build a conclusion around.
2: Yeah, but how does how does he know that? How does he know that nothing nothing that he's aware of is is sensitive?
1: He answers time? that question the very next panel because he says because we're both still here. That's how he knows.
2: So yeah. that's that's the well. If he wanted me dead, you would have killed me already. Yep, that's, that's exactly that's, it. It's then okay. And
1: then Alex goes to hug her daughter, Megan, but it turns out she's being observed by a satellite. And the screen that's watching them is in a reconstituted number two's office, complete with round ball and screens. And then the final page, I'm interpreting it because it is a picture of um, the Houses of Parliament. I am interpreting that as this new number two's office is within, possibly beneath, the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben. Dun, dun, dun the end question mark yeah doesn't say that but it should it's pretty much what's implied there
2: to be continued in the uncertainty machine by Peter yeah Dilligan in right. 30 years uh, yeah. I mean there are there are a bunch of novels there there were there were novels certainly after the TV series and
1: are they sequels or are they set and in the, the village?
2: village I think there are sequels
1: okay but I'm not sure all right cool 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 all right so rate this give, give me a because uh, you didn't like this very much
0: uh Hmm.
1: Has my explanation, has my connecting the dots, has my drawing all these pieces of red yarn from one thing to the next, has it improved your opinion of this in any way?
2: Somewhat. Mm-hmm. But it still feels needlessly opaque in a way. I mean, certainly you could say that about everything associated with the prisoner. so it's going to say. The original text. The words you're looking for, I think, are on brand. yeah. Alice is not a super interesting character. Big problem. I'm, I'm, I'm sure Dean Motter thought he was being very, very progressive by by making her a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, yeah, I, I, I like. I don't know what she's about, other than she doesn't like it when the men fight. Circumventing the world on a on a sailboat. That that seems very much what. Our o g number six would would like nothing better than to do that, right that That seems like his highest aspiration. He you know he doesn't have a a little little daughter in boarding school who he wants to get back
1: to.-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I hope I hope the point of this isn't that her trials and tribulations over the course of being on the island of the village. Make her want to be a mommy again. I hope that's not what we're supposed to draw from that because that sucks if that's the case. If that's what that reunion scene at the end is, is supposed to be telling us. Ooh, boy, fuck that. Um, but I don't think I, I, I it, that only occurred to me now. Um, huh. But I don't know. So give me a rating. Three.
2: Three, Three
0: and six. Three
1: and six. I look at uh significantly more than you but not. A tremendous amount more than you. So I'm going to give it a four. Four out of six, I think. I, I kind okay. of... I, I would have given this a two out of six as a uh, toe headed youth when I read it for the first time because it just didn't connect it. And I was also reading it piecemeal. And if you read this thing piecemeal, as you know, uh, it doesn't cohere. Yeah. It's hard. You yeah, have to kind of yeah, go back yeah. every time and read because it is so abstruse that you have to go back every time. Uh, but as a, as a done-in-one sit-down read, where you can go back and page back and see what is that referencing, what's that reference to and what is that blah 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 and what's what's that on his desk and oh look a penny farthing. Um, I think it works. It's more cohesive. It still nurtures a lot of inessential mystery but I mean that's that's the prisoner for you right?
2: Yeah. This was my gateway to the prisoner. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm not sure how I would have encountered it if not for for this. I don't know. My buddy Ted who um he got really into this. He generally had less patience for the um, more philosophical, esoteric, and literary and scary DC comics of this era than I did. But he really got into this and, and into The Prisoner and actually joined Six of One hmm. okay. for a year or two and showed me the newsletter. So uh, Before yeah, you had seen uh, any
1: episode of the show.
2: I seem to recall us renting cassettes that had like two or three episodes on them. I think maybe just 2 Mm-hmm. Yeah, I seem to, to recall getting you know renting the, the cassettes that would have two episodes per cassette from okay. Blockbuster.
1: Okay. Well that's the prisoner's shattered visage. Yes it is, boy howdy. Uh,
2: yes. I'm sure everyone will be delighted that we are we are returning to canonical
1: <laughs> mm, I guess it is canonical, right? Prisoner yeah.
2: prisoner material. hmm I I reserve the right for us to, to swerve. I enjoyed our our episode of the Phantom Glen. Um, we learned about you. We learned uh, a significant amount about you in in that episode, I think. So, that was certainly the uh, intent. <laughs> what you doing this Sunday, Glenn? This, uh, assuming I can get this episode, which is late. This is much later in the week than we usually tape. But uh, assuming I can, I can get it edited to a releasable standard in a timely fashion. This will be coming out in advance of this weekend, which. It's, it's a bigger weekend for you than for me, I think, Glenn.
1: Um, about the week I'm going up to Westchester to see some friends? What what, what, what do you... I don't understand.
2: The Tony Awards. Tony Awards. The oh, Tony I'm Awards, planning. yeah. You're yeah. a big Tony guy. Yeah, for someone who who has uh, subjected me to various musical performances from various Tony Awards yep. over the years.
1: Well, it's going to be a thing. The Tonys are only going to be on Paramount+, Plus, and then there's going to be like the... Oh, Broadway's on. Broadway's back, baby! Thing on CBS two hours later. So that I don't really—it's—it's it's a whole weird.
2: Oh, really? Okay. It's not—it's yeah. not on regular TV. The... Don't, think, don't think so, because it is such a
1: weird Tonys, right? Because it's been a year since any of those nominations came out. Because it is
2: an essential Tonys, Glenn. Mm. An essential Tonys, because I want to tell listeners of this podcast: if you watch the Tonys Sunday, the twenty-sixth. Some of this information is uh, state secret confidential. Why, why, why did you resign? So I, I can only say so much. But Casey, our, our theme song singer, celebrating those those whack ass inflections and, and weather balloons, et cetera, et cetera. You'll see her. You will see her and hear her singing on the Tonys.
1: Yeah, but it, will she be on the Tonys, Tonys itself or will she be on the Tony celebration Broadway's back thing?
2: I didn't know there were two separate things. She's They're just like lives. the televised Tony Awards. She's going to be okay. singing what um there's enough secrecy around this that that uh, I, I asked her to be tell me very specifically what I what I am allowed to to say. The number where all of the performers are dressed in black, white and gray. Look for the tallish redhead. <laughs> she might be singing a solo. mm
0: mm-hmm. Mhm.
2: Um, unfortunately, I'm, I'm reasonably certain she won't be singing our theme song.
1: Mm. Well, you know, missed opportunity. She will
2: be singing something it's called on branding, stage on camera, whatever. at the Tonys. Yeah, Don't miss that. That is Sunday the 26th. On Friday, October 8th, the official release date, the, I want to say, fourth and final U.S. release date of No Time to Die, the yep. fifth and less ambiguously final 007 for Daniel Craig. The best 007, Glenn. I'm going to say it. Mr. Craig has brought a sophistication, a nuance, a depth to the role of, of James Bond that I don't think even John Connery ever had. Ever had. Okay. My favorite Bond In his last adventure, the much delayed No Time to Die, and you and I will be talking about this on your show, Pop Culture Happy Hour, with Daisy Rosario, Mm -hmm. who I've been on many panels with in the past. Love her. Tried to get her on this show, and I'm confident we will eventually, Um, but we're going to do some James Bonding.
1: TM, 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 TM. Yep.
2: That's right, and actually, I did see on, on my phone just before we sat down to do this that for the first time in a couple of years, there is a new James Bonding. If there's one podcast that I think has cast the longest shadow over this one, it is uh, Matt Gorley and Matt Myra's James Bonding, and they just released a new episode where they're talking about their hopes and dreams for this final Daniel Craig Bond flick. Excellent. But I'm not here to plug their shit. I'm here to plug our shit. Man. Mm-hmm. Good.
1: This is a, this is a plan. October eighth. October eighth what's next do we know what's next i don't know
2: i think what's next is another one from mcguin's late 70s wilderness the hard way
0: you're looking at the best man there is he never lets the client down his name connor but when the setup is death it's the man who pays the sniper who calls the tube you can tell him that's the last (laughs) And when a man like McNeil wants Connor in, you're the man. Not anymore. There's only one way to go. The hard way. Men like us don't retire. Don't they? No, we stay in the action. We stay alive. I need the best.
1: Which he has a lot. He's like the main character in that, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's...
2: Co-starring with Lee Van Cleef...
1: Good. So that's not like him in it for like five minutes <laughs> and then out. Um,
2: we do have some of those. I'm pretty sure his screen time in A Time to Kill, which is a very similar title to No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. Um, I doubt very much he's in a time to kill for more than like three scenes and five minutes. But it doesn't matter because Linda has agreed to come back and you you don't say no to Linda Holmes when no, she said said yes to to us. But no, the hard way is a McGee Van Cleef extravaganza. And that's streaming for free on on Amazon Prime, although I think you do have to sit through some commercials for sure. That. Which again, my only objection is that they're not period commercials. They're probably circa 2021 commercials and uh, I I think all of these archaic things should be presented with their... (laughs) Probably
1: a fucking gecko trying to sell you on some insurance.
2: With their original ads for things that you can no longer buy. Mm -hmm. And and probably not even advertise on television. How?
0: When in case you're already on the way to deal with our friend. When two hard men fall out, the bullets fly. All the way. All the way. There's only one way out. a hard way. I knew you wouldn't disappoint.
2: So that's uh, that's next. Tell me, what is your association with Lee Van Cleef, Glenn?
1: Uh, slim to none. Um, you know, I might yeah. have seen The Dirty Dozen at some point in my damn life, but I, that's I really don't know too much about the guy.
2: I just watched Escape from New York. For the mm-hmm. first time in a while, because Blank Check is doing John Carpenter mm-hmm. now. I've never been a big Carpenter guy, but I mean, i many of his most iconic, most enduring films are things that I have not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm giving some of them a, a second look, and um, his movies are generally available to stream and generally short. He likes a 90-95 minute runtime, so it's mm-hmm. late at night, and I'm just looking for something to zone out to carpenter is a nice available choice and there's there's some good van cleef in uh there's there's kind of a screen tough guy passing of the torch in escape from new york from from old man van cleef to uh young hottie kurt russell
1: okay all right (laughs) i'm 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 looking forward to simbago and van cleef man-on-man action
2: i'm sure you won't be disappointed our guest for that episode will be our buddy patrick patrick flynn from the original cast wherein theater folk discuss their favorite or at least a influential, seminal, not just Broadway cast album, sometimes it's the London cast album. I believe in your case, when you were there talking to My Fair Lady, Glenn, you, yep. you realized that the one that had turned you gay, I think you said, was, mm-hmm. was not the OBC, but the uh, uh, West, I don't know, West WEC. Is that a thing? Do people say that? Sure, I don't think they do, but you can. Okay. Feel free. Sure. The West End album was the one that had gotten its... Tendrils into you, mm-hmm. meat hooks, <laughs> uh-huh. meat hooks like a stevedore. All right, yes. Yeah, so come on back here for the Hard Way, hey, with Patrick Flynn again. This is the the Hard Way '79 with Lee Van Cleef, not yep. the Hard Way '91 with Michael J. Fox and James Woods and L O Cool J. Uh, there is at least one other film called The Hard Way. Yep, 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 yep. Of more recent vintage than that, but the one we're talking about is '79 Maguin Van Cleef.
1: So until that time,
2: be
0: seeing you. Be seeing you. <laughs>
2: Absolute was conceived by glenn weldon and is produced by me chris Klemick. i wrote our silly little theme song which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend casey aaron clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother jonathan clark on guitar and percussion see casey perform on the tony awards sunday september 26th check that out Learn more about Casey by going to vitalvoicetraining.com and or caseyarinclarke.com. Follow us on Twitter at notanumberpod. Our Instagram handle is A Degree Absolute. You can write the Citizens Advice Bureau at adegreeabsolute at gmail.com. And if you leave us a five-star review on Apple or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use to hear our show along with your, and this is important, your Wildest Prisoner Take. We will read that take on a future episode.
0: Terribly interesting.
1: K-A-R-120C. What's the engine number?
0: Do tell me. 461034TZ. Marvellous.
1: No. I know every nut and bolt and cog. I built it with my own hands.
0: Then you're just the man I want to see. I've been having a good deal of overheating in traffic. Perhaps you'll care to advise me. Doesn't matter degree partial, it's a degree absolute.